Spaghetti! This is, you guessed it, it's a, a podcast. podcast. How did you know it was a podcast? I don't know. I had a feeling. A deep... Specifically, a podcast where we play Dungeons and Dragons with each other. hey It does exist. Just like the Orange Drake on Kelly. The Orange Drake on Kelly does not exist, but D&D, D&D does. It, no, it does. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Make Believe Heroes, an actual play 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons adventure for all ages. I'm your Dungeon Master, Paul, and today we are ready to get back to Season 4. Uh, I know that the last episode was maybe a little different uh, from what you may or may not have expected. Who knows what you expect at this point? Who even knows? But we got to meet two of our party members from season four last week. And so if you consider how we have done all previous seasons, uh, where we've had four party members, then you can expect maybe to meet two more today. So I know you're ready to get right to that. And I don't want to hold you up, but before we hop into it, I just want to say thank you so much for sticking with us. Thank you for giving us the time that we needed to get our stuff together. You know, I know that there was a really long wait between 3.5 and season three, and that was not my intention, but life and 2020 and everything else just kind of got in the way. So we are so excited to finally be back on schedule. We cannot wait to see what is going to happen with season four. But before we hop into the action, I did just want to give a couple things. First, if you love our show and you want to support our show and maybe hop in on some of those sweet rewards that are available, then you should go to patreon.com slash makebelieveheroes. There's a link in the show notes of this episode, and there are a lot of things you can get access to, like extra episodes, early releases. We release these episodes on Friday for all of our early release patrons. Um, we have our Discord, which is probably the best part of our Patreon, where we just get on there and just talk with all of our friends and fans about the show and, and just anything else. And uh, You should definitely get on that if you're interested in supporting the show. Even at just $1 a month, you can hop into that Discord. And trust me when I say it's it's one of the most welcoming and awesome communities anywhere on the internet. I also want to give a huge shout out to BattleBards. And um, if you've never checked out BattleBards, you should go to BattleBards.com and you can use the code Podcast to get a discount on a BattleBards Prime subscription. You'll find a lot of those cool weapon and magic sound effects and music tracks and uh, soundscapes and all that stuff on BattleBards. If you've never gone and checked it out, you absolutely should. And now finally, one more thing. I want to give honor, if I could, to one of our amazing fans who has gone on to Apple Podcasts and left us a five-star review. And if you'd like to have your review read on our show, just go to Apple, anywhere where you can write reviews, and post us a five-star review, and we will read it live on the show because we love you. And those five-star reviews help us to get noticed, and they just help us in every way. So, this is a review from Half-Orc Barbarian entitled, Outstanding! Exclamation point. I just want to say first, I love your podcast. And second, this is one of the best D&D podcasts out there. 
The story is amazing. The players are great at RP. The DM presents compelling and amazing games, and it's clean. This podcast has helped me learn how to play D&D. If you're looking for a clean and great podcast, this is it. Thank you, Half-Work Barbarian. Thank you so much for the kind words. And it's really awesome that our show could help you learn how to play D&D. That's actually one of the ways that I learned how to play, uh, the way that I really learned the rules and, and and really got into RP was by listening to other D&D podcasts when there weren't a million D&D podcasts. So it's really exciting to know uh, that we could play a small part in your D&D future. So thank you so much for the five-star review, and that is enough from me. Let's get right into the second half of our opening arc for Season 4. To the mountain we go. The cold rain beats against the dark windows of the salty skiff tavern in the far northern town of Port Lunal. It's dark already. The daylight doesn't last nearly as long this far north, especially in the winter months. The usual fair sit around inside the old tavern, chatting and eating. The sound of the rain and the crashing waves drone on just outside. The old wooden door swings open and two strangers saunter in, chuckling jovially as the wind and rain blow behind them. One is clearly a dwarf, his dark beard mingled with gray. His human companion has an arm thrown around his neck, a mostly empty bottle swinging loose in his hand. They stumble toward the nearest empty table, laughing, and take their seat. The barkeep comes around, bringing them a bowl of stale bread and a tall glass of water. Welcome to the salty skiff, gentlemen. I reckon you'll be wanting a warm meal. That's right, barkeep, and two stout beers, the man says, scratching his scruffy cheek. The barman grunts, turning to go get their food and drink. Soon, with two hot bowls of stew and two tall tankards of ale, the strangers get louder and rowdier by the minute. The dwarf takes a big drink of his tankard, then burps, laughing into the crook of his arm. I almost feel a little bad for the guy, you know, Talman. Talman chuckles as well, quieting down a bit. Yeah, almost. But it's not like the Falcon hadn't given him chance after chance, you know. His time was up. But hey, once we take all the loot we gathered from his place back to the boss, He'll make back his investment plus interest. (laughs) He throws back the last big gulp from his tankard, slamming it down onto the table. (laughs) And what about the stuff you took for yourself, eh, Talman? He chuckles again. (laughs) That cloak and stuff. Well, I don't reckon it'd be worth much to the Falcon. But say what you will about Night Rain. He had style. Shh, quiet, the dwarf says. Let's not speak his name, in case there are any unwanted listeners. The two of them look around the tavern suspiciously. There are half a dozen locals looking tiredly into their bowls of stew, but no one seems to be paying them any mind. We should (laughs) probably (laughs) hit the road, Cleric, Talman says. Picking himself up from the table, he slips, knocking his empty tankard to the floor, shattering it. The barman glares at the two of them, 
but Glaric pulls out a few silver pieces, flashing them his way, then sits them on the table as they stumble back out into the cold, rainy night. Moments after the two of them leave, a dark figure rises from a shadowy seat in the back of the tavern. He drops a gold onto the counter for the barkeep as he makes his way across to the door, swiftly following the drunken strangers into the dark. This far north, at night, very little starlight or moonlight can be seen, especially during these winter months when the clouds cover the skies. As the rain beats down and darkness has settled over Port Lunal, Talmond and Glaric stumble drunkenly through the dark streets, and the sound of the beating rain is a perfect cover for the footfalls of their dark pursuer. They stumble on, chuckling, laughing loudly, stumbling from side to side. Finally, they turn left down a small street, heading toward their rooms for the night. Once down this dark alley, out of the view of the main street, the soft twang of a bowstring could be heard, if not for the beating rain, and Glaric's laughter is cut short as the sharp point of an arrow thuds suddenly into the back of his neck. Glaric! Talman turns to see a dark, cloaked figure in the alley, swinging something in a circular motion over his head. He runs as fast as he can toward the door at the opposite end of the alley, but he's too slow. There is a whooshing sound through the air and then a thud as a heavy weight tied to a rope swings around Tallman's chest, thudding hard into the middle of his lower back. He hits the ground, all the air driven from his lungs. He rolls over, trying to yell for help. Help! But before he can regain his breath or do anything at all, the dark figure stands before him and with a crash brings his heel down onto his head. Tallman jerks awake as ice-cold water is dumped onto his head. Shivering and shaking, rocking back and forth, he realizes that he is tied tightly to a small wooden chair. His eyes adjust to the light, looking around. He is in a very dark room, dank. It stinks of mold and salty, wet air. The walls are stone, as is the floor. And the only light inside the room is a small lantern seated on the floor around eight feet in front of him. It is shuttered on the backside where the light only shines forward, almost blinding to Talmond here in this dark place. Hello? Hello? Uh, who's, who's there? Is someone there? Uh, where am I? Show yourself. A light shuffling can be heard beyond the light. Before I tell you mine, I want to know yours. My, 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 my name? I will not. I demand that you untie me at once. Do you know I have powerful friends? You're going to regret this, I promise you that. Does it look like I take orders from anyone but myself? I couldn't say, because I can't see you. Well, how about I step into the light for you? The dark figure steps forward into the light. Ezra, why don't you describe your character for me? My character is about six foot tall. He's wearing a dark cloak with the hood put over his head. 
because he wants to look really menacing. Okay. And he's got a short sword on his hip. Right now he has it hilted so he can just brandish it to people. But when it comes down to it, he'll use it. So you step forward and your cloak, you have your cloak over your head? Yep. So just like part of your face is visible? The only thing you can see from my face is from the top of my lip down to my shoulders, and you can see a prominent scar on my neck. Tallman looks up at you. Well, what can I do for you exactly? Why have you taken me hostage, and why did you kill my accomplice? I've come seeking answers that I have been looking for for a while. Answers, and you think that I can give them to you, or that I would give them to you? I draw my sword, and I stick it down in the armrest right next to his arm. Okay, why don't you actually roll me an intimidation check? It's a 15. Okay, so with a 15, he looks down at the blade right next to his arm, and he kind of shrinks away from it. I see. Look, I was just following orders. What exactly do you want to know from me? My name is Talmond. I... I work with uh, some powerful people. Like I said, they're not going to be happy if you kill me. Have you ever heard the name? The Falcon? He looks uh, nervous, sort of shrinking back again in the chair. Um, the Falcon. Uh, maybe. Why do you ask? It's my father. He looks stunned. The Falcon is your father. Oh. What do you want with me? I want answers on his whereabouts. All right. (laughs) If I tell you where to find him, they'll kill me. And that matters to me why? It's not about whether or not it matters to you. It certainly matters quite a bit to me. You can either die by them or you'll die right now. Tallman gulps heavily. I see you're a man of your word. Uh, And I did just watch you murder my good friend. So, I don't know exactly where he is. He's probably in Dimmerhold already. You give me the information that I need, I'll set you free. And you don't have to tell anybody how I found out. So you might go away with your life. But if you do not, your fate is in my hands. Fair enough. He... Look, all I know is... We were supposed to meet with him and the rest of our agents in Dimmerhold. You may have heard about the Gauntlet of the Moon. Gauntlet of the Moon. Yes, yes, it's a big to-do in Dimmerhold. It's a traditional competition. Um, I, in my, in my, in my bag over there, I, there's a, there's a, a scroll. Pull it out. Read the scroll. You'll see. I walk over and I grab the scroll. You dig through his pack, and when you do, you find a few things in there. You pull out a nice black cloak, very nice, uh, kind of fancy, a little fancier than anything you would generally use. And rolling out of the cloak, there is this silver ring. It looks like a very ornate, sort of fancy ring, possibly gifted at some point uh, from a woman or maybe even like someone of royalty. It, It looks fancy. It looks like it has some importance to it. And there is a scroll. You grab it, you pull it out, and you begin to read it. And you just sort of skim it quickly. It is an official invitation to an event called the Gauntlet of the Moon. It is addressed to one Balric Nightrain. 
You read on down and it has some simple instructions of when he would need to arrive and the reward of this event. You know, you just kind of read it quickly. Basically, to sum it up, it tells you there is an event going on in a week from today. One week from today, this is going to begin in Dimmerhold. Anyone is welcome to come, but this Balric Night Rain was specifically invited, and it notes that the victor of the Gauntlet of the Moon will be gifted renown throughout the world of Monumi, a hefty sum of gold, and any request within reason, made to the king and queen of Dimmerhold. You see, it's a, it's a big event, a big to-do, and people are going to be coming from all over the world to participate and to watch. It's really a, the perfect opportunity for pickpockets and highwaymen to take advantage of the situation. So it's definitely a place for people who are seeking more power. Sure, if you're looking to participate in the gauntlet, then yes, but if... You, even if you're not looking for power, uh, gold, lots of gold to be made. Fair enough. Tell me more about this Night Rain. Balric Night Rain? I see you spotted him there on that uh, invitation. Yes, Night Rain was, uh, he was an adventurer, a man, a half-elf, if you will, who owed your father a lot of money. And he couldn't pay. He had a real gambling problem. And after ample opportunities, your father sent us to deal with him. And now he is dead. And since he's dead, he won't be needing that cloak or that ring or that invitation. So I took it. Just as a little, you know, a trophy. A reward. He looks up at you, afraid. So he hasn't changed at all. All right. Then tell me more about this night ring. What did he look like? Look like? That's what I asked. Tall. Probably somewhere around your height. Uh, thin. He had a, a well-kept beard. Uh, that was his black cloak. He liked to wear a, that nice, dressy black cloak and sleek clothing. He, he liked to dress the part, you know. He was well-known in some places as an adventurer. Uh, not as much as, as maybe he thought he was, but, um, yes, he, he carried a sword on his hip. A lot like you, honestly. Why? Why do you want to know what he looks like? You need not to concern yourself with that. What I want to know is, what was his personality? His personality? He was boisterous, uh, loud, flashy. Um, somewhat annoying. And where did he live? He lived not too far from here. He was staying near Port Lunal. I believe he had intentions to go to the Gauntlet, so he was staying up here for now. I, 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 I could take you there. I could take you there. If, if, if that would... If, if I take you there, will you, will you let me go? Hmm. Well, I'll tell you this. I will be taking this invitation as well as his cloak and the ring. And perhaps I do need a guide to lead me. I'm your man. Uh, uh, could I ask, what happened to Glaric? I suppose he's just laying dead in the street. He looks a little bit shocked. Know this. If you try anything funny, you will suffer the same fate. Because I do not need you. I understand. And if I take you to the home 
of Balric Nightrain, then we're square. You'll let me go? Stepping forward, you pull your sword back from the arm of the wooden chair, laying the cold steel across Talman's neck. You lean down, looking right into his eyes, speaking clearly but softly. You have my word, Talmond. You take me to Night Rain's home, and I'll cut you loose. I need you to deliver a message for me. Oh? And what message is that? You return to your falcon, and you tell him, Claren is coming for him. Cold wind blows across the red-baked earth of the drylands. It is unseasonably cool this far south, even as the sun reaches its peak at high noon. Two tall standing poles rock slightly as the black and red flag of the Rorag Gook clan waves strongly in the wind. People are moving about within the camp as usual, but no children are out playing for the discomfort of the cold. Atop a rough-hewn watchtower, around twelve feet tall, one figure is seated, his hands cupped around his eyes as he scans the distance for anyone approaching. His gray-skinned arms are naked in the cool wind, but his head and body are entirely covered in a thick blanket of feathers. He mumbles to himself, praying to Manumi and practicing his meditation as he keeps the watch, his shift drawing closer to its end for the day. Suddenly, as he spins around, focusing his eyes with his hands in the shape of binoculars, he spots a small dust cloud in the distance moving this way. He hops up onto the railing of the watchtower, focusing excitedly on the dust far ahead. Manumi! Hear me! Help me to see far! Help me to smell my enemies on the wind! As he does, the cloud clears just enough for him to see someone on horseback, riding in this direction at a full gallop, a cloak covering their head. Uh-oh! Looks like we got company. Definitely a horse this time. And a rider. And a rider. There's a rider. Okay, wait, wait. Check, check, check. Better go, better go. He slides down the watchtower in a hurry, flapping his feathery cloak-like wings, and takes off at a sprint heading toward the nearest hut. Quickly pushing through the heavy flap, he bursts in through the doorway. Thorn! Someone coming this way. Riding fast. You better go get a look. A tall, lanky half-orc is seated on the floor beside a fire, sipping from a steaming bowl of stew. His hair is pulled back in a tight ponytail, his narrow bottom tusks protruding upward on either side of his nose. He looks up at Hawk exasperatedly, sitting down his bowl of hot stew. Now, Hawk, you sure this time? You said the same thing last time. You got the whole clan up in an uproar, all over a couple of camels on the move. Yes, I'm positive. I'm sure this time, Thorn. I'm sure. I'm sure. But I didn't sound the horn this time. I did just like you said. Came and get you really quick. Come see, come see. Hawk turns on his heels and takes off running out the flap, a burst of feathers flying off inside Thorn's tent. Thorn sighs, standing and stretching. He quickly grabs his bow and quiver from the wall of his tent as he follows Hawk out into the clear, cold day. He jogs forward, moving faster now, and swiftly ascends the ladder to the small watchtower. Hawk is already up there, perched again on the railing and looking forward with his binocular hands. Just look already! Would you just look at it? Just look at it! The figure is much closer now and clearly visible. 
But what Hawk mistook for a horse and rider, Thorn can now tell, is a bit too small for that. The approaching rider is cloaked with a dark blue cloak, expensive looking, and they're riding on a short steed, likely a pony of some kind. Well, what do you know? It looks like you were right, Hawk. Well, mostly. He takes his bow off from his back, hopping off the side of the tower and sliding down to the ground below. He steps up between the two flagpoles at the head of the entrance of the camp, an arrow resting lightly on his bowstring. He doesn't draw it, just holds it there nonchalantly as the cloaked figure approaches. And as they draw nearer to the camp, they draw their reins in, slowing their mount to a trot and then a slow walk. Once they get within 20 or 30 feet of Thorn, they stop completely, dismounting. The figure is very short, probably under four feet tall. A girl. The dark blue cloak flaps in the wind, but she pulls it tight around her with one hand as she steps forward, holding the other up in a greeting as she approaches Thorn. He pulls the bow around, clearly showing the arrow knocked as he speaks. Hello there, miss. You've arrived at the camp of the Rorag Gook clan. If you would, please state your name and your business here. She stops short, the wind blowing her hood back just a bit, and the sun glinting off of the thick spectacles over her lime green eyes. Oh, I finally made it. I, I mean, no harm to the Rorak Goot clan. I, I hope you'll believe me and grant me passage. I I've come with a message from Dimmerhold for someone I believe is in your clan? Thorn lowers the bow just a bit. Oh, and who might that be? She grins, holding up a small silver scroll. The people's champion. Near the center of the camp, there is a large tent, likely the largest throughout the Rorag Gook clan. Inside, a large round pit is filled with steaming hot rocks. Seated beside it, with her back turned toward the heat, is a half-orc woman. Her long, dark hair is braided, pulled around her left shoulder, and draped down her front. She's cradling in her arms a little half-orc infant girl, who's turned from feeding and focused her eyes on the commotion coming from across the room. Standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with long wooden staffs in their hands are two half-orcs. One is a towering seven feet tall, naked from the waist up, bald-headed, and flowing with thick muscles. His gray-skinned shoulders are as broad as a barn. He grips the staff in both of his enormous hands, the wood crackling slightly as he does it. Across from him, is a smaller half-orc, but not small by any means. His royal blue sleeveless shirt stands out in contrast to his charcoal skin, and his blue eyes gleam with excitement. Between them stands a scarred, gruff half-orc, his bottom tusks jutting up almost to his cheekbones. All right, you two. Now the last thing we need is another broken bone, he says, motioning toward the wrap on his still-mending leg. So don't let your anger get the best of you. Your goal is to either disarm or incapacitate your opponent without lasting injury, he says, looking meanfully toward Grip as he emphasizes those last words. He looks at Kjorg, giving him a slight nod, then steps back, taking his hands off of their shoulders. Once out of the way, he claps his hands and says, Begin! All right, Kjorg, roll initiative. Okay. <laughs> let's uh, let's spar with Grip. You want to? Yes. So the rules that Fang gave you and Grip were these. Whoever either disarms their opponent first 
or incapacitates them in some way wins. You're not supposed to be trying to do any sort of lasting injuries or anything like that. Not that you're going to try to kill Grip or anything like that. Whatever it takes to win. <laughs> but yeah, so you two are going to be fighting it out. So Grip takes the wooden staff in his hand, <sighs> grunting towards you. But you're, you're going to get the chance to move first. What do you want to do? Sweep the leg. Okay, so you're going to try and uh, sweep the leg. What is your intention, sweeping the leg? Put him on the ground. To sort of put him on the ground like you're needing to do, I'm going to need a grapple check. It's going to be strength v. strength with the two of you. So you're going to come at him, and you're going to try to knock him down. Let's roll it. Strength versus strength. Well, that's a 10. Total? Total. Okay, so you come at him, and you try to sweep the leg. And when you do, how do you sort of go about that? Probably just, like, try to low kick his legs out from under him. With your legs or with the staff? I was thinking legs. Okay, so you bring your foot around, and when it connects with his leg, it stops. Your foot just stops. Uh, I mean, it's like you kicked a stone wall. (laughs) It it doesn't move. It doesn't hurt you, but it does not move. Uh, And then he is going to, taking the staff in his hand, try and whack you really hard with it on the head. Don't do it. What's your armor clock? Oh, no. 16. (laughs) Gosh. What's your old nat 20? Uh, I've got these dice envy dice, and they've got a line on one of the sides. Yeah. Rolled a nat 20. Of course you did. Which he's just hitting you with a stick, okay? So it's not going to be anything crazy, but he does he does crit you. So, But here's the thing. This isn't just a pure up and down fight. So what's going to happen is you're going to take some damage, and uh, it's going to be in the same action. It is going to be a, a strength v. strength check to see if he can get you into some sort of a, a um, vulnerable position. Let's say it that way. So you take 10 damage. So here's sort of the custom rules that I've set up for this fight. A grapple can bring an opponent into submission, but a grapple is not going to incapacitate someone. You know, he might try to choke him out, or he might try to choke you out. If a grapple is held and maintained for three rounds, or if it's accomplished with a crit, then you can be incapacitated. Now, this was not a grappling check, so this this is not a crit on a grapple that he got, okay? Uh, this was an attack, but because of the crit, I'm going to allow him to try and go ahead and get you into a grapple, which would keep you from attacking him on your next turn. So if you either hold a grapple for three rounds or you grapple someone with a crit, they're incapacitated, okay? Okay. If you drop them to half their health, they're incapacitated. Or if you manage to disarm him, if you manage to take the uh, staff from him. And the way that you can do that is with a grappling check, but while grappled, you have to succeed on a very high DC in order to get the weapon away from him. And you can't get the weapon away from him unless you have him grappled, okay? So, your options are to try and get his HP down, keep trying to hit him, or try and grapple him and get him that way, okay? Okay. Right now, he's trying to grapple you. You took 10 damage, but go ahead and roll me a strength check. Okay, it's athletics. Okay, so that's 18 plus 8. Holy crap. 26. You definitely overcome his attempt at a grapple. Maybe you kind of duck under it. I don't know. But when he tries to grab you, you slip right out of his hands. You going to go in for him? Yes. What are you going to do? I'm going to try to grab him by the throat. Uh, so grappling? Yes. All right. Uh, contesting athletics checks. 
That is a 14 plus 8. So that's 22. Okay. You got him. <laughs> so how do you do that? What do you do? Okay, so what did he just do to me? He whacked you with the staff over the head, and then he tried to get you in a, like a headlock, uh, but you slipped out of the way. So since I was kind of low from trying to sweep the leg, mm-hmm. I would just like kind of jump up at him and grab him by the throat. Okay, like, like with your hands? Yes. So you've got your hands around his throat. Yes. It's kind of like trying to choke out a tree trunk, uh, but you've got him. You've got your big meaty cure hands around his throat, and it is his turn as he is going to try and break free from the scrapple with contesting athletics checks. But as you two are about to do that, you don't notice because you're singularly focused, but the flap to the tent that you're in opens, and Thorne actually steps into the room and sees the two of you sparring and Fang standing on the other side watching. He steps over to Keela and Baby Misk there by the hot stones, and he leans down and whispers something to her. She gives him a little nod of assent, and then he steps back over to the flap of the tent and holds it open, motioning for someone to step in. A short figure in a deep blue cloak steps into the tent as well, nodding to Keela, and they speak to each other quietly as you and Grip are trying to choke each other to death. Grip is going to try and break free. Give me a contesting athletics check. That is 12 plus 8. 20. I don't know what to do. Uh, he did crit, but it's not the good kind. Oof. So you've got your hands around his throat. Right as this stranger walks in and speaks to Keela, you jump up and you've got your hands around his throat. When you do, Grip brings his arms up, and his arms are so big and so long, he can just reach up over your shoulders and get his hands around your throat as well. But when he does, you feel this fury just well up inside you, and you begin squeezing tighter, and you see something you've never seen. You see Grip's eyes kind of go wide. (laughs) He's shocked by the amount of pressure that you're currently putting on his throat, and you hear him start to gasp for air. What I'm going to do in this moment is I'm going to give you two successes. The way this works is you have to hold that grapple for three rounds to knock him unconscious. Basically, you're only going to have to pass a grapple with him for two rounds instead of three. So if he fails another check to get free, you've got him. Nice. So it comes around to your turn. You see him kind of choking as you're literally squeezing your hands around his throat. What do you do? I am going to jump up Mm -hmm. and kind of wrap my legs around his legs to try to force him to the ground on his back. Okay. Oh, man, I, I guess this would be athletics as well. Go ahead and give me an athletics check. Since this isn't, it's not really a grappling thing. You're trying to knock him prone. You're trying to pull him to the ground. That's a 17 plus 8. Oh, my gosh. You're probably going to beat him anyway, but I was going to say I'm going to give him disadvantage. Uh, yeah, you beat him uh, on the first roll, so I don't even have to give him disadvantage. Um, you are able to pull him to the ground, and when you do and you've got him on the ground, you've got your legs kind of around his his legs, I guess. You've pulled him down. You've got him pinned in a really like good submission hold. You've got him down. You've got him in submission. You are feeling amped right now. You and Grip have been sparring a lot of the day, but for the first time today, you feel like you have really got him on the ropes. To be honest, he's kind of put it to you pretty good so far. 
uh, you're feeling kind of bruised, you were feeling kind of tired as you went into this, but right now you feel pumped. Yeah. You are flexing, you're holding him down. And honestly, you feel strange. You feel a little weird. Your your body feels a little weird. You actually, uh, you felt like this once before. You felt like this when you were down in the uh, temple of the Mogador. Oh. Grip is going to try and get free, but you've got him on the ground, and you're on top of him. I'm going to give him disadvantage on his roll. I need you to roll me a contesting strength. Okay, so that's 13 plus 8. 21. He digs deep. He calls upon all of his strength, and the amount of strength that comes out of him in that moment is... Frightening. I mean, you fought a lot of dudes, okay? You've had a lot of boxing and fighting matches down in Brightport. You fought monsters. You fought that thing in the Temple of the Mogador. You fought Braxton Tarek and his cronies. Grip is the strongest person you've ever ever fought in terms of pure physical strength. And it is surprising to you what comes out of him. But he starts to slip through, and you feel like the grip on your hands give. And in that moment, two arms come bursting out of your lower side and wrap around his chest and squeeze the breath out of him. And when you do, and that breath comes out, his eyes roll back in his head and his arms go limp and he passes out. Get ripped, son! (laughs) You uh, stand up, uh, huffing, breathing hard, looking down. Grip is unconscious on the floor and Fang is standing there with his mouth kind of hanging open. (laughs) By the gods. Literally. It was true, was it? (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know what to say. Keela, look at, look at Kjork. What, do you want to go next? She, she's standing now. Keela is standing. She walks over and she's holding baby Misk, the little gray-skinned half-orc baby is reaching forward with her little chubby hands for you. I grab her with my two big arms. You reach out with your two extra arms taking her and uh, Keela lets you. She trusts you, obviously. But she just stands there, a hand on the hip, looking at you and she says, My goodness, Kyog, you you were not lying about those extra arms, were you? Of course not. Those are really something else. I, I don't know what to say. Nobody knows what to say. It really is like the Mogador made flesh, isn't it? Thorn steps forward. Well, uh, it looks like you got two extra arms there, Kyork. I'm not sure that brain of yours is fast enough to handle telling those arms what to do, though, while you're telling the other two what to do. You know what I'm saying? You want to find out? <laughs> yeah, but not today. <laughs> I just saw what you did to Grip. I've never seen anybody put Grip down except maybe Fang here once or twice, but even him is a rarity, isn't it, that Fang? And Fang steps forward, uh, just kind of, he's got a real serious look on his face. And he puts a hand on your shoulder, and he says, Son, you're ready. You're ready to truly be the people's champion. <laughs> you think so? I do. I really do. You know, I've been, I've been a bit worried about all this stuff you've been telling me about this mission. And, well, you really are a champion, aren't you? Of course. That's what I've been saying this whole time. You hear a soft from the side of the room, 
and stepping forward is this short figure in a dark blue cloak. She approaches the four of you as Keela steps over, putting a cool rag on Grip's head and bringing him back around. She steps forward toward you, Jorg. Can I help you? Uh, yes, actually. Uh, oh, you want to spar? <laughs> um, no, not not today. Uh, I'm I'm actually here with a message for uh, you, Kjork. Oh, is it a fan letter? Um, no. Uh, but in a way, yes. She pulls back her blue hood, and Kjork, you see her thick glasses, lime green eyes, and long bright orange hair, and you immediately recognize her. It's unmistakably Juniper. Jupiter. Kjorg. <laughs> what are you doing here? I, I've come to, I've come to give you a message, Kjorg. What's the message? Well, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll get to that, but it's, uh, it's, it's good to see you. And uh, my, how you've changed in just a few short months. She says, motioning to the, uh, the four arms coming out of your sides. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, I, it's, um, uh, well, sorry, I'm a little uh, flustered. I've, I've been looking for you for a while, actually. Uh, Fang steps up, reaching a hand toward her. The name's Fang. Um, your name is uh, Jupiter, is that right? She chuckles. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not Jupiter. It's actually a Juniper. Uh, my name is Juniper, but Kjork, he always, um, he always got it wrong. Uh, and Brackle. I think it was actually Brackle's fault. I think it was all Brackle's fault. It was definitely Brackle. I think a lot of things are, are Brackle's fault. Um, but Everything is Brackle's fault. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, and he never wears hockey pads. <laughs> you know, I don't even know. I don't know what those are, but you're right. He 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 wasn't wearing hockey pads. Um, but anyway, Kjorg, uh, I I've come with a message from Dimmerhold. She says now, kind of brushing her cloak and like standing up straight and trying to look all official and sort of professional. Um, uh, is there somewhere we could sit? Yeah, I sit down in the floor. <laughs> uh, she chuckles. Uh, like kind of closing her eyes for a minute, shaking her head. Perfect. She steps over next to you and has a seat as well. Fang sits down sort of across from you. Thorn leans against one of the posts holding up the tent as Grip is coming to groggily shaking his head and Kira has given him some cool water to drink. So I don't know if you've heard, um, but there's a pretty big to-do coming up in Dimmerhold. Of course I heard. Yeah, we've heard something about this. Um, Kjorg is actually planning on going to Dimmerhold later. He's got a business to take care of up there. A, wee, um, a mission, if you will. He, uh, he he's, uh, he's coming up in the world. I'm the people's champion. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's the people's champion. And uh, he's uh, he's got a bright future ahead of him, that's for sure. And I mean, look at these, look at these arms. <laughs> I still can't believe it. I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Yeah, with uh, with four arms, <laughs> Kjorg, um, you you might be able to win. I mean, of course you. Yeah, well, um, you know, Kjorg. I, <laughs> so, well, I don't want to belabor the whole thing, go through my whole story, but after you all left and after we talked, she says, kind of blushing a little bit, 
uh, there in Silvando, uh, uh, sorry, um, in Sil- Silvandale in the tower, uh, I was um, actually hired uh, by the master of the tower. He came to find me um, after you all left that evening. I-, I was actually planning on leaving as well and, and going toward Brightport. Uh, but he came to me and he knew a lot about me. It's weird. Uh, he was, it's like he could just really like see right into my soul or something i i don't know but it, anyway he we talked and he 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 hired me he he told me he wants me to work for him uh, and to leave the hot feet stop working for them and, th- and that he would settle my debts with them and at first i was like no 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 there's you can't do that but um he has a lot of money ooh the silver dracon kelly do you say that yeah <laughs> oh my gosh Jeffrey. <laughs> What? What do you mean? Huh? Who? No, wait. Who did you say? The um the master of Sylvandel. Uh, the master. Oh y- yeah, yeah. Uh, what? What? Anyway, um, she seems a little bit flustered. A- anyhow, he he hired me to work for him. Um, and he mm. sent me to Dimmerhold shortly thereafter to deliver some gifts. Um, you know, about a month after I had started paying my debt back to him and it's, it's nothing like it was with the hot feet I, I love working in Silvando the people there are so nice and oh my goodness the food do you remember the food that was pretty amazing I mean incredible so anyhow he he, uh, he after I'd proved myself he sent me on a mission to Dimmerhold to deliver some goods as a gift to the royal family in preparation for the gauntlet of the moon I don't know how he knew about that but he gave them some really fancy <laughs> gifts uh, very, very uh, uh, valuable stuff. And um, he is going to join them for the gauntlet as well, or at least last I heard from him. I haven't seen him in over a month. Oh, maybe I'll get to fight him again. Oh, you fought him? Yeah, he's pretty tough. Oh, wow. What, with the fangs and all and claws? What? Huh? Fangs and claws? What? George, what are you talking about? I, I, I'm, I don't know. Anyway, I'm, I'm, uh, I need to hurry. I'm sorry. It's getting too long in the tooth. Um, so, yeah, the, the, when I got to Dimmerhold, he had told me that I could stay there and he would meet me there. But then I received word that he wasn't coming after what happened in Fallen Grove. And with Atonia, he was going to offer his aid there. And, I mean, I, I, I know that that's affected the whole world. I mean, even here... Is it just me, or should it be warmer than this? Here, I mean, it's the desert. Yeah, it used to be sunny and 105 every day. Yeah, he's right. It was, um, it was a shock when we heard what happened to Fallen Grove and to, to Atonia. It's, uh, it's crazy. I, I never thought we'd see days like this, but Kjorg here, he's, he's been tasked by the gods to help with that. And, well, it is colder here. The cold winds are blowing from the north and from the west now. But we're getting by, he says, motioning to the warm, hot rocks in the fire pit beside you all. Right. Well, anyhow, so, um, I'm sorry. I, I, I will hurry. Um, turns out, with the gift, there was one stipulation. The master requested that they extend an invitation to you for the Gauntlet of the Moon. How do they know me? Well, they don't. It, it was it was the master. He's the one who knows you. And he told them he was sending them this gift, and the only thing he asked in return is that they give an invitation to you. Of course, we weren't exactly sure where you were, and I've been wandering around for 
few weeks anyway, almost a month trying to find you. I went all the way to Branshire. And anyway, long story short, here we are. And I have this for you. And she pulls from her cloak a silver scroll. It is small, uh, but it is shiny and silver. And she hands it to you. Ooh. This come from a Wonka bar? Kjorg, I feel like like half the time, no, like three quarters of the time, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's probably true. You break the seal? I open it. It has a wax seal marked with the emblem of Dervetter, the anvil with the hammer and the moon above it. You break the seal, unrolling it, and inside, in a flowing black script, are these words. The royal family and city of Dimmerhold extends this formal invitation to the recipient. One, Kjorg, quote, the people's champion, end quote, of the Rorag Guk clan, to join us for the sacred honor of participating in the Gauntlet of the Moon. Should you so choose to enroll yourself into the Gauntlet, please return this invitation to the great city of Dimmerhold by the first day of the week, 14 days before the winter solstice. With regards, Durand Shattershield, King under the mountain. Wow. Yeah. I guess I gotta go. Where are you going? To the mountain. Isn't that where you already planning on going? Uh, yes. Here, I, I, hand, I hand him the, uh, the scroll. He reads it, and then he hands it back to you. Well, Kyork, you have made some interesting company. And now, here you are receiving invitations from the King of Dimmerhold. That is, uh... <laughs> well, I guess once you've uh, met a god, it's not that big a deal, but... Juniper, her eyes get huge. <laughs> um, what? What do you mean, what? You met a god? Well, yeah. Which one? I'm the people's champion. Sure. Which one? Paylor. You... Wow. She looks stunned for a moment, and then she just shakes her head. Kjorg, you, uh... You never cease to amaze me. I know. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> um, well, in, anyway, so with that invitation, um, see, anyone in the world, anyone from Manumi, anywhere, can go and, uh, and participate and try out for the Gauntlet of the Moon, but... If you receive an invitation like this, then you have, you're guaranteed a spot past the trials in the, in the gauntlet proper. And from what I understand, it is going to be like nothing they've ever done before. A competition of all the world's greatest fighters and wizards and the wisest and most intelligent adventurers from all across the world. And if they come, then... Wizards? Well... Yes, anyone. Anyone can go. Gross. Wizards aren't that gross, she says, kind of like looking down <laughs> for a moment. <laughs> um, anyhow, but if, if you want to, to go, if, if you'd like to, uh, to, to participate, then um, you could uh, return with me. Oh, are you going? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm actually I'm going to be working with the royal family. Uh, I'm going to be doing some announcing, actually, for the uh, for the gauntlet. I have some experience in, in things like that. Kyog, I mean, 
I know you planned on waiting a little bit longer, but really, you probably should get going. Yeah, I'm ready to I'm ready to fight somebody. Well, then it's settled, she says, hopping up to her feet excitedly and uh, dusting herself off. Uh, we'll we'll go. Do you do you have a horse? Yeah, I mean, yeah. As you stand, Keela walks over, leaning up and giving you a hug around the neck. Now, Kyogi, you have to promise me that you'll be careful, okay? Of course. Sounds like there's going to be some very powerful people here, and and I know you've told us that these these servants of darkness are, are looking to, to destroy all of Monomi and the free people and the good people of, of Monomi. And I know it's your job, and I know it's your responsibility to go and help them, but come back, okay? I'll be back. You still have Baby Misk, don't you? Yes. Baby Misk reaches back for her mom. Take care of little Miss Care. But don't worry, we'll take good care of her. and She'll miss you, I know. She'll miss you uh, playing with her, throwing her up in the air and catching her over and over again, even though I've told you not to do that. And um, But she'll see you soon, right? Yeah, of course. Juniper walks over to the door of the tent. Um, well, if, if we're going to go, we should probably get going while there's still plenty of daylight. I guess so. Fang steps up, reaching out a hand towards you. I grab his hand. Your extra arms start to go back inside of your side. You feel that sort of supernatural strength leaving you. Well, I don't know if I'll ever get used to seeing that. Well, you better. Listen, Kyok. You're the people's champion. <laughs> you can go... You can win this gauntlet, and you can stop whatever it is that these unchained you've told us about have got planned. When you're done, you'll come home. You're my son, Kyork. And he takes you in a big hug. Big hug back. And we're going to need you here, too, once it's all said and done. He says, slapping you on the back, and then he kind of gives you a little push toward the door. And take good care of this uh, Jupiter. Uh, make sure that she's safe on the road as well. Oh, I will. Uh, um, okay. Uh, anyway, thank you. It was nice. It was nice to meet you all, she says. Oh, and be ready for some more when I get back, Grip. <sighs> he says. <laughs> uh, chuckling, the two of you turn toward the door, stepping out of the flap into the cold wind. You find your steeds and leave the Rorag Goot clan behind riding north toward Dimmerhold. Night falls on the drylands. The cold wind continues to blow from the west and the north as the cool terrain becomes almost frigid in the night air. Suddenly, The stillness is broken by the sound of wings beating far overhead. It is a clear night, and yet for a few moments it seems as if the moon becomes shrouded by some cloud, further dimming the already dark night. The flapping of wings continues, then stops. The darkness recedes, and the waxing moon shines brightly again on the world below. Two figures moved swiftly forward, keeping low to the ground. 
they reach a small rise on the terrain, ducking behind it quietly for cover. On the other side of the small rise is a cavernous outcropping, the opening over ten feet high. Shade covers the entrance, the dark shadow thick inside. Before the outcropping, there are sections of busted wood fencing and numerous scarred sections of the ground, as if some beast had been digging or rooting around the area. The taller of the two dark figures lifts her head and sniffs the air, listening intently. Confident that they are alone, she skulks forward toward the outcropping, her shorter companion in tow. The short figure stops at the deep cuts in the ground, stooping to observe them. The taller walks toward the cavernous entrance, now standing tall and pulling back her hood. Even in the moonlight, her beauty is striking. Her cherry red hair is shoulder length, hanging loosely. Her bright eyes gleam in the darkness with a reddish hue. Her right cheek is marred with a long gash, healed but freshly scarred. She's dressed in traveler's robes covered with a dark cloak. Stepping into the shadow, she sniffs again, scanning the area. Many large chains hang from the cavernous walls, attached to deep anchors buried in the stone. They stretch toward a deep-pitted iron ring in the center, running through it. These long chains are ended with large cuffs, all of which seem to have been opened by a key lock. Tempari, come, look. The short figure breaks off from her investigation of the grounds and approaches the entrance. She walks right past her companion, going forward and running her hands across the metal cuffs. She leans down and sniffs them as well, letting out a cough of disgust. <coughs> there was certainly something here, Rivora. What I cannot say, but it reeks of chaos. Rivora nods in agreement. I too can smell it. And I can sense something. It is a familiar feeling, she says, reflexively touching the fresh scar on her cheek. This is a place of death and darkness. That much is certain. But whatever was here, it is long gone. Tempari steps toward the wall, where a pile of bones sits, covered in filth and rot. It would appear that Hopenkel's intel was correct. There was certainly something here, and all appearances point towards some great beast. It's no wonder the locals were afraid to approach. I hope that none did, she says, looking toward Tempari and the pile of bones. Whatever was here, it did not break free. It was let loose. Tempari takes off quickly out from the entrance with breathtaking speed. She zips across the ground, going from claw mark to footprint, scanning the area. After just a few moments, she returns to Rivora's side. There are some tracks heading northeast, but they stop there, and none that are consistent with these marks, only humanoid footprints. I don't know what to think. Rivora stands, her chin in her hands, thinking. Well, at least we know there was something here, and I fully suspect this is the work of the Unchained, maybe even Blackfire himself, or his twisted queen she says with disgust. All right, I will return to Branshire and report what we've found. I want you to stay a bit longer, sister. Follow those tracks northeast for a few hours. See if you can't pick up the trail elsewhere. If we could figure out where this beast has gone, 
then perhaps we could do something about it before they can accomplish whatever mischief they have in mind. Timpari nods, her copper eyes glowing beneath her hood. But be careful, Timpari. Don't take any unnecessary risks. Don't let anyone see you. I'll meet you in Branshire when you return. And thank you, sister. A dark cloud covers the moon again. Then, the beating of great wings. As the moonlight shines down once more upon the scene, both figures have disappeared into the night. Just then, there is a fluttering of smaller wings. Up from the ground behind a piece of the broken wooden fence comes a large black crow taking roost on a post. It turns its head from side to side, its wide, dark eyes glinting in the moonlight. And then, with a call, it takes off again, setting its path west and south toward Ventaven. This has been Make Believe Heroes, Season 4, Episode 2. We hope that you've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. As our four characters make their way toward Dimmerhold, who knows what might wait in the Gauntlet of the Moon. Tune in next week as we draw ever closer and see what happens next. Thank you for listening. We love you. Adios. Adios.